a lot of young people these days are spending so much time chatting with their friends on their phone rather than in, in real life. And part of that is because of the technology of social media, of smartphones. But part of it is also, I think, a change that is not about the technology, a sort of a change of, of sort of paranoia and fear that, has, that is not about the technology. Because when I was a kid, if I was... Uh, spending too much time reading a book or on the computer, eventually my mom would be like, you need some fresh air, go outside. Yeah. In San Francisco, if I told my kids just to go outside, by then probably get arrested. A Canadian implant in Silicon Valley, Jonathan Abrams is now a founder of four Silicon Valley startups, Socializer, Friendster, Hotlinks, and most recently Nuzzle, with backing from Mark Andreessen, Naval Ravikant, Homebrew, Softtech, and Lowercase, just to name a few. Jonathan has first-hand experience on how timing matters for companies, how to differentiate it in a crowded market to rise above the competition, and how execution is as important as the initial idea for a company to succeed. Jonathan is also a prolific angel investor, counting AngelList, Docker, Front, Instacart, and SlideShare amongst his portfolio. I love my interactions with Jonathan because he's outspoken about supporting and opening doors for women founders. He's also on the board of Girls in Technology. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. How does someone from Canada come to Silicon Valley and end up where you've ended up? In- sure. Uh, well, yeah, I am originally from Canada, uh, born in Toronto. And then actually after college, I was living in Ottawa, working at Nortel doing telephone software. And that was kind of boring. Um, while I was in college, um, the web was kind of invented and Mosaic came out, but I didn't really think I could get a, a job doing those things, even though I loved them. Then uh, Netscape and Yahoo went public. And I read a book about Silicon Valley called Startup Silicon Valley Adventure. And I thought, you know what, I maybe I should actually get paid to do internet stuff. So I emailed my resume to Netscape and Yahoo. Did not hear back from Yahoo, but Netscape hired me in the end. And uh, I moved to Silicon Valley and uh, worked at Netscape, which was an interesting company. And that was sort of my entree to Silicon Valley. And then uh, Netscape ended up doing some layoffs. And uh, eventually I started uh, my first company and went through the whole dot-com boom and crash. and and kind of been an entrepreneur ever since. Um, and now I'm working on Nuzzle. And also I co-founded Founders Den and become an angel investor and a bunch of other things. Um, you also started Friendster. Yep. Which is not a small feat. Thank you. Netscape is a good entry into Silicon Valley. Is there, you know, do you think that the brand helped you enter good circles at the time uh, for someone coming to the Silicon Valley is there um, something you advise that they should do to kind of make a right entry here? Well, I, you know, I think that the first thing is to just get here. People are always talking about how San Francisco and Silicon Valley are getting too expensive, which is definitely a problem, and and that there's going to be Silicon Valleys or you know Silicon this and Silicon that, and innovation can happen anywhere and all that kind of stuff. But people have been talking about that for 20 years or longer, and I, I still haven't really seen that that happen yet. I don't really think I would have accomplished the same things had I stayed in Canada. That, that's what I think personally. So I still think that this is where the action is and 
I still think that the San Francisco uh, tech ecosystem and community is is really um, like no other. Um, I don't think LA or New York or Austin or China or London or any other place or Toronto is you know is quite the same. Coming here from Canada and not having gone to MIT or Stanford or Berkeley definitely put me at a, I guess you could say a disadvantage because I mean when I moved to Silicon Valley I didn't know anybody. So somebody who uh, is coming uh, to Silicon Valley and they've gone to one of those schools and they have sort of a pre-existing network is definitely going to have a bit of a leg up. So I had to basically start networking from scratch. Did you have a leg up in terms of fundraising with your Netscape network for your first company? Um, I mean, I don't think that being uh, a former engineer at Netscape alone was enough to to raise money. Um, I don't think that alone was, you know, was unique or significant enough. Um, certainly, it was, um, I guess, a, a, a brand that people recognized. So that was at least, you know, I could say, hey, you know, I was an engineer at Netscape and they'd be like, okay, great, you know, happy to hear more. But I don't think that alone was gonna, you know, was gonna do it. So, what was your first company? My first company was called Hotlinks, and it was a social bookmarking company, kind of like Delicious, but several years before yeah. that, during the dot-com boom and crash period. Well, after the dot-com crash, things got pretty bad uh, for almost everybody. Uh, Hotlinks ended up merging with another company. I moved on. Um, the service operated for a few more years. Eventually, the uh, the combined company did eventually shut down. I actually never really got a detailed explanation of what happened because it was a few years after I'd left. And so, how many companies did you start after Hotlinks and between Nuzzle? So we and what were they, and and what happened? Uh, between Hotlinks and Nuzzle, there was two other companies, uh, Socializer and Friendster, plus Founders Den, which is not a startup, right. but rather a co-working space and community for startups that I co-founded with a few partners. You were early um, in the co-working category, um, if you if you will, <laughs> and you haven't expanded from there on. Uh, did did you have a desire to do that when you started seeing a need for the for that kind of space? Well, it's really sort of getting big, which is probably the only way you make money in a sort of a real estate arbitrage business. Is, was really antithetical to the reasons why we started Founders Den. And Founders Den is not something that really makes money. I mean, the amount of time and, and effort that we put into it is sort of a labor of love. It really doesn't, you know, the money we've made was minimal and doesn't really justify the time because it's really been more about community. So when yeah. we started Founders Den, there were other co-working spaces. There were, and some of which are, are actually long gone. I mean, there was one called Dog Patch Lab that was, was one of the more better known ones that was, I think, affiliated with, Maybe it's Polaris, some VC firm, but they ended up um, closing. But there were a few other co-working spaces back then. What happened was uh, myself and my three partners, Zach, Jason, and Michael, didn't want to work at one of the existing co-working spaces. We wanted something that was more curated and more um, more intimate, more uh, someplace where experienced people would, would be comfortable hanging out. Uh, and not be pestered all the time rather than just something sort of random. So that's why we started Founders Den. Since then, some of the co-working spaces that predated Founders Den are gone, but so many new ones have started, and it does seem like San Francisco has got a lot of co-working spaces <laughs> now. And also the, the rise of WeWork from just this other co-working space, this you know multi-billion dollar company has certainly surprised us. But the four of us who, who, who started Founders Den, we have other jobs, 
Um, Zach has Data Collective, uh, Jason has August Lock, I have Nuzzle, and Michael has a new boutique investment bank. Um, so Founders Den was never really intended to be um, us trying to make money off of you know rent from startups. It was really trying to actually create a great uh, office space for ourselves and friends and other entrepreneurs and other investors in a, in a community. You focused a bunch of your life on creating a community. Where do you think that the drive or, or urge came from? For me personally, I mean, I think that what has always interested in me has been using technology to connect people. And it's funny because some people, of course, think that it's the opposite, that, that computers and and social networking and all that kind of stuff, you know, is, is isolating. And of course, it can cut both ways. Um, when I was a, a teen in Toronto, you know, I was pretty nerdy and I didn't really have all the sort of people like me, you know, right around me in my neighborhood and getting online and using BBSs with modems and all that kind of stuff. That was actually a, a way to be social and to reach out and to, to connect with other people who shared my interests. And I've always been interested in that. So Nortel, Netscape, Friendster, all of these companies really have been about using uh, technology and software and the internet to connect people. That's that's really what I've always been passionate about pretty much my entire career. Yeah, so let's talk about Friendster. I mean, it's been, what, 12 years since um, check you might have taken for the, for the company, is that right? The first investment? Yeah. When did you take your first uh, investment? I started Friendster, Friendster in 2002. So that would be 15 years ago, 15, and I, we probably took yeah. our first investment money probably at the beginning of 2003. So, yeah, I guess you know, 14 years ago, something like that, a long time ago. How do you how do you feel about that entire journey? Would you have done anything differently? Of course, of course, I would have. Well, there's so many things that I could could say. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I would do differently because Friendster was. Uh, a company that had a lot of potential. It, it could have and should have been a huge, huge success. And uh, other companies that were copied from Friendster went on to, to very large success. So, of course, there, I, I, if I could go back, I would do things differently. Probably the number one most fundamental one would have just been retaining control. A so-called shared board structure, uh, which you'd still probably see today, was especially common back then. It was considered the norm. And so we had a structure where um, there were board members appointed by common, board members appointed by preferred and mutual. And one of the things that I discovered is, is that the share, a, shared, a shared board structure may be a mess. I think in, you've, you've had cases where the founders, like at Facebook, have been in control. And if that's not the case, then it probably means that the investors are essentially in control. And the independent uh, and outside board members will typically uh, go along with what the uh, the venture capital uh, investors want to do on the board. That's something that um, that I experienced anecdotally, but I've actually read is is pretty common um, as well. So in in the case of Friendster, yeah, I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I would have made sure that I was in control. Um, the company between the venture funding in 2003 and the company's sale six years later in 2009 went through six CEOs in six years. So uh, I think that, uh, and I was um, excluded from a lot of uh, pivotal decisions. And then ultimately, the company was sold for less than the patents were worth. So the patents were then sold to Facebook by the company who acquired Friendster for more than they paid 
to buy the company. So, and that's just an example of you can do a lot of things right. You can have a great IP strategy or, or whatever you do right. Ultimately, if you lose control, all those things can be undone. So um, on the Venture Hacks blog, Naval and, and, uh, and those guys said uh, something like valuation is, is temporary, but control is forever. And, you know, I think I, that's definitely a lesson that I learned from Friendster. In hindsight, what structure would you have picked? And then did you try to uh, replicate that learning or, uh, you know, for Nuzzle and a socializer after that? Well, I think it, it really can be done a few different ways. I think in the case of Google, I think they had some extra voting somehow in their bylaws or something. Um, in uh, you know, The most simplest way is simply to have um, in the voting agreement, the founders or common shareholders uh, have the right to elect a, a majority of the board members. Um, and you know, in the case of, of Nuzzle, you know, we're still a very small company and and you know, as of now, I, I I do control the board. So I guess you could say that I I haven't made that mistake again. But I mean, it it all depends, and it's all situational, and it depends on the stage of the company and certain things. Um, but in the case of 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 Friendster, you know, I think because the company uh, had millions of users, was growing exponentially, was so promising, and so many investors were interested in investing in the company, I think I had the leverage at the time uh, to have if I even thought it was appropriate, um, retain more control, and I think that would have prevented some of the mistakes that, that later happened. You, one of the investors um, for, for Friendster is Benchmark. Do you have any thoughts on, on that and the Uber board story today? Well, I mean, I guess like everybody, I've been reading about it, and I'm pretty shocked that, that both sides let it go to a, a public lawsuit, to be honest. Um, it, it certainly doesn't seem like the, um, you know, the best way to, to resolve these things because, um, you know, these kind of things just seem to benefit the lawyers and, and, and sure, certainly the people in the press are having a field day reporting all of this. Um, yeah, I'm pretty surprised that it got to this point. Um, um, kind of a mess. I know at one point you mentioned... Um you were having tech issues. You think the fate would be different if there was, you know, it was in the era of cloud providers today. I remember reading somewhere that, you know, you had to add more terabyte of expensive RAM memory and things as such, which, you know, thinking back, that would be an issue you would have to face, I mean, in today's world. Well, I think if we were in today's world and we could uh, run a script and spit up 100 new servers on AWS, of course, that would make it dramatically easier to scale and it would have made it a lot easier to deal with the growing, uh, the growth problems that Brentster had. Um, so that's certainly true. But I would also say that if we had simply had competent management, whatever engineering and scaling problems we had could have and should have been solved. And there are other companies that had problems. I mean, Twitter had the fail whale for years, but eventually they fixed it. And in the case of Friendster, the technical challenges um, were just not fixed. In fact, a lot of mistakes were made, and I would say that I think we we actually made things worse rather than better instead of fixing the problems. And then the result was that um, the site was was kind of unusable and, and slow and buggy for years, uh, which is a ridiculous amount of time. And it was during that period where we basically you know lost our American market share and leadership. Um, but the root of the technical problems is people problems. We had the wrong people in charge.
Yeah, so for founders who are growing fast, right, uh, today, is there some learning from your um, from your journey that I, I'm, I'm sure it's hard to, you know, summarize it into like one learning, but something that you think you'd advise them to focus on? Is it teams, culture, um, product, all of the above? All of the above. I mean, I think you have to be uh, careful to avoid making the same mistakes I did. That if you have something that's fast growing, that you don't then basically take everything that's working and throw it away. Um, you know, take the founder, have the founder fired, uh, take a management team that's that's been accomplishing this growth and replace them with a fancier management team that has the right names but don't really understand or care about it as much. I mean, all those things can really mess something up, and, and it happens over and over again. And, you know, a lot of the things that happen at Friendster, history repeats itself. You see these same problems happening at, at other companies. Uh, you see other companies where they go through a whole bunch of different CEOs in, in, in short succession. You've seen other companies where they hired uh, executives who had the right names on the resume but, you know, didn't really care uh, or weren't the right folks. Um, weren't there for the right reasons. You see other companies that are distracted and they're instead of fixing their core problems, they're doing other things they shouldn't be doing. Um, you see all this stuff happen again and again. You've been early for most of your companies in trends and timing-wise. Do you think that you were a little too early or you were just right if things all worked out execution-wise? I think timing is huge. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs get lucky or unlucky based on timing. And if you're too early, that oftentimes means you're not going to be the successful company and it's going to be the second or third uh, cycle of, of, of what you're doing where somebody will actually make the commercial success. So I think timing is very important. Certainly, Hotlinks was probably way, way too early. The vision for Hotlinks was helping people share links with other people, which is now so much of what people do on Twitter and Facebook, but we were way, way too early uh, for that one. In the case of Friendster, um, because there's so much misinformation and inaccurate stuff out there often reported about about every company, um, sometimes I'll hear people say that the problem with Friendster was that it was too early, and that's actually not true. That's a myth. Uh, Friendster's timing was perfect, which is why it grew from zero to millions of users very quickly, and then the company, unfortunately, was mismanaged. Um, but in the case of Friendster, you know, the timing was right, and MySpace and Facebook and Bebo and all those other companies were pretty uh, soon after Friendster. They were not five years later or ten years later. So Friendster, the timing was fine. That wasn't the problem. There were other problems. But I do think overall, timing matters a lot. Well, do you think, um, you know, community-wise, there have been a lot of isolated communities that have been formed because of this social movement over the last 15 years? Is that coming out of the way social networks were designed? Um, or that's just a effect of just any um, community creation, even in real-world society? The word community is overused, and it's sort of meaningless. Um, prior to me inventing Friendster, most of the online community stuff uh, tended to be uh, sometimes anonymous or pseudonymous, and it would connect people who had no pre-existing relationship in a, a sort of a random way. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you and I were related or went to college together or were neighbors, were friends, and had any sort of pre-existing relationship, and we both created a page on GeoCities back, you know, 15 years ago, <laughs> we would both end up with a GeoCities page 
in a, in a sort of town or street or whatever they called it, basically a sort of a virtual invention that had, had no reflection of any real life relationships we already had. And so one of the innovations that we wanted to do with Friendster was to change this sort of purely random, purely sort of anonymous type of online interaction and have the real life networks, whether they were uh, friends or geographical or, or whatever, re reflected or at least partially reflected in your online experience. And I think that is something that, that Friendster accomplished and, and really changed with Friendster and the things that were inspired by Friendster. Um, but the word community is sort of meaningless because sometimes people are talking about taking existing communities and uh, facilitating them online, and some people are talking about an online community that you know isn't even a community. Like like you're just saying all the people who use a certain site, and you're calling them a community. Or it may be a you know a subreddit or a meetup group or something that maybe there there is an essence of community that is starting online. Those are and those are sort of all different things. And the reality is. Whatever technology you invent, people are going to use it and they're going to abuse it. And that's What's your fondest memory in the last 20 years of you being in Silicon Valley um, and all the ups and downs you've seen? Oh, wow. That, that's a pretty hard one. I mean, there's so many ups and downs. As Mark Andreessen and others have said, being an entrepreneur is a, it's a real roller coaster of ups and downs. When I moved to Silicon Valley from Canada, I mean, I was just really sort of wide-eyed and excited uh, just to be here at all. And I think it's it's hard for me now to ever have that sort of um, naive excitement about it all that I, that I did <laughs> back then. Um, but it's, as a founder, it's a lot of ups and downs. I mean, um, with Nuzzle, my current company, it, it, almost every day there's something. Um, we were named one of the best apps of the year by New York Times, Time Magazine, and Google a few months ago for 2016. And then, yeah. thanks. And then, and then, you know, just today I got an angry email from somebody because we uh, we were uh, we changed a uh, an email server, and he got annoyed about that. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, you get a you get it's you know, it's a it's a weird thing um, running your own company. I mean, you get a lot of praise and you get a lot of abuse. And um, it's kind of a lot of uh, ups and downs. Um, and I've had people who've told me that you know they met their their husband or wife on Friendster, which is uh, usually um, fun to hear. Sometimes a little scary to hear that you impacted people's lives in that way. Um, I also enjoy you know, hearing stories about um, people that I've mentored or. Uh, have invested in and, you know, going on to success and that if, you know, in any way the, uh, the help I've given them has been has been helpful and, and they are actually becoming successful and, and I've put a, a little into that, that's pretty encouraging to hear. And I think when I moved to Silicon Valley, I, like I said, I didn't know anybody and there were a lot of people who helped me. There were a lot of people who introduced me to people, helped me raise money and all those kind of things. And that's just part of what makes Silicon Valley such a special place. So, if I can be part of that and helping other people, that's something that, that I enjoy and I think um, it just makes it all more worthwhile. Thank you, Jonathan, for being with us today. Follow us on Twitter at Abrams and at Shruti. Stay tuned for our next podcast from Ryan Hoover, founder of Product Hunt, next week. And if you like this episode, you will like some of our earlier founder episode from Justin Khan, who sold his company Twitch to Amazon for a billion dollars. Thank you.